Well, good morning again. If you're just tuning in or you're coming back to our archive later on, we want to say good morning and welcome to Randall. Uh, My name is Pastor Milo. It's good to open God's Word together. I came across a comic strip uh, this week, a Christian comic strip as it would be that I found particularly interesting. There's only a few scenes, which comic strips often are, but it packed a pretty good punch. Uh, Agnes Day is the name of the comic, which is a play in its words in its own right. It's creation of Pastor James Whiteson. He's a Lutheran pastor. I'd not come across him at all before this week, but I actually was very interested in him. So in the Lutheran tradition, they preach each Sunday from uh, the common lectionary, meaning that the passages of Scripture are picked out uh, years, sometimes multiple, ten years sometimes in advance. And so he takes, Pastor James takes the passage every week, the primary time the sermon and he creates a small comic strip which he posts weekly to his church and now is posting online as well. So apparently each week we get to uh, follow the adventures of two sheep if you want to follow him, two sheep named Ted and Rick and they follow the assigned readings of the week and this discussion goes back and forth between these two sheep but this was what this discussion this week as far as our text was concerned. Uh, Sheep number one was Ted, and he was holding an iPhone in his hand, and sheep number two is Rick, and he is holding a cup of coffee in his hand, and this is how the conversation went. Ted says, I'm telling you, being on Faith Bible makes following Jesus easy. And he says, I can't imagine why. So every time someone does something wrong with me, I click on this forgive button right here. I just click on this button next to their profile. And if I click it more than 77 times, and then there's an asterisk in the comic strip that says, if you are using the KJV plugin, it's 490 times. If I click it more than 77 times for any one person, Facebook automatically removes this person from my friends list, and I don't even have to think about it. Pretty cool, huh? Sheep number two, Rick, mumbles under his breath, Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy indeed. I am, I am glad that you decided to join us here today. If it's your first time with us, again, if you're tuning in today, uh, we are in week number eight of a sermon series as we are working our way through the gospel of Matthew. We began eight weeks ago from that moment that Matthew documents Jesus telling his disciples, saying these words, take up your cross and follow me. We began there. Now we've been traveling along together through the words of Matthew and and this journey forward through the moment that Jesus himself would literally be taking up the cross and dragging it through the streets and climbing the hill outside of the city that toward Calvary to the place of the cross, Golgotha. And on Good Friday, we will read the words of Matthew and talk about how Jesus was executed as a criminal, as he was an innocent man, but he was beaten and bruised, crushed and humiliated for your sins and for mine, the sins of all humankind. And then three days later, just like he said that he would, we will also read the account that Matthew says of Easter Sunday, Resurrection morning when he broke through the barriers of time and space and defeated death itself 
and rose victorious over sin and triumphant over the grave. This morning we read from Matthew chapter 18. A passage that is dealing directly with forgiveness. And not just forgiving someone once or twice or seven times or 77 times or 400 and 90 times, more clearly stated, Jesus is commanding his followers to forgive an innumerable amount of times. I once went to a concert a few years ago of a music artist that I enjoyed listening to. It was a, it was a house show, is what it was called, a house concert. If you don't know what that is, a house concert is a show that an artist does, and it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It's a concert or a show in a house. That was it. There was nothing real exciting about that definition, but it's actually pretty unique because financially speaking, for the musician, it's actually a pretty smart way to go about things. They don't have to pay to rent uh, a music hall. They don't have to pay uh, to, to work through booking everyone or contracting the booking agency of getting everybody there and getting all the tickets sold. You just show up in someone's house. Uh, you, if you're the musician, you just bring a guitar to play. You play to a small audience of dedicated fans who are at the chance, and oftentimes, I think the house is often offered for free because it's a fan who wants to provide this. Everybody's excited to be there. Everybody wants to get up close and personal. Well, late in the show, this artist, he began taking requests from the audience because that was the type of show that it was. He'd played through his songs, done his things. These were dedicated fans, though. And so these fans knew to ask for the most obscure songs possible. So, so as he is standing there in front of them, these are not just songs that were popular, the songs that had been heard on the radio. No, these were songs that no one had probably ever heard of. And being put on the spot, they're vulnerable, six feet away, without a band to cover up the mistakes that he's making, without having slides or anything like that to be able to help with the words to the songs, or no earplugs to be able to have someone in the background saying, your next word is, you know, nothing like that. He just had to stand there and sing these songs. Some songs that he had written 15, even 20 years previously. And he said this before he began playing one of the songs. And I've never forgotten it. It's stuck with me. He said, I'll play that song, but here's what I'll do. He said, I'll play a cover of that song. I'll play a cover of myself playing that song when I wrote that song. He said, I wrote that song when I was 19. and I was in a college dorm room and I knew nothing about this world. I knew nothing and I had no scars. I, I, I can't sing that song as me anymore because that song doesn't mean the same thing as it used to. So I'm going to sing that song as if I'm embodying the person who would sing that song or who would be able to say those things. The person who embodied the lyrics of that song. I'm going to be vulnerable with you this morning to be able to say I'm going to kind of do the same thing here this morning text on forgiveness. I'm going to put this at the lectern. I'm going to put this text before me here at the lectern. And we're going to have, I'm going to do my best to come across it as best as I possibly can. I'm going to ask you to come and meet me in the middle here in our biblical text in Matthew chapter 18. And, and in doing so, I'm going to do it as a bit of a cover song, if you will. Because these are not my words, first of all. But it's also the realization that Perhaps uh, these are words that I could not speak entirely truthfully to you this morning. And so I need you to come to the text because the text is the truth. The text is God's word. It's absolutely true and God's word never fails. And so that's where we must go this morning. 
King David writes, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Today's subject matter is a difficult one. Matthew chapter 18 has not been no pleasure walk by stretch of the imagination. But forgiveness is a difficult path. And this morning, as you can see the title of the sermon, The Path of Radical Forgiveness, I'm going to argue that this morning it is a radical path of forgiveness. So let's read again, Matthew chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles open, I hope you have by now, beginning in verse 21. I'll be in the New International Version this morning, using a digital device, anything like that. New International Version, chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. We're going to walk this path. We need to be reminded that the path to radical forgiveness rejects common sense. The path to radical forgiveness rejects common sense. Peter, in light of all that Jesus has been teaching here about agreement and about unity and about all the things that he's been sharing with the disciples, he wanted to sound extremely loving. And so he suggested that forgiving a repentant brother up to seven times, he thought this was pretty hot stuff. Actually, as we are reading this week, I was actually going behind the scenes as the accepted limit of the day, what the rabbis would teach during that time frame, during this first century that they are having this discussion. They would teach that you would forgive three times. And he thought, maybe I'm going to go to the limit. And I'll say seven times. There's a number of perfection, so that must be the perfect number. David Gutzig is an author and a pastor that I like to read, and he says this. The rabbis discussed this question and recommended it not more than three times. Peter seven times is therefore generous. But Jesus' reply does away with all limits and all calculations. The path to radical forgiveness rejects common sense. Many of you will remember, some of you weren't born yet, and that's all right, the tragic Amish school shooting that took the lives of 10 young schoolgirls in October of 2006. After shooting up the school, the shooter himself turned his weapon on himself and took his own life. As often happens with tragedies like this, reporters from throughout the United States, even throughout the world, they all came there to Pennsylvania, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to cover the story. However, in the hours and the days that followed the shooting, a different and unexpected story began to develop. And here was the headline. Amish forgiveness in response to school shooting. That was the headline. In the, in the midst of the grief over this shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference and put all of their lawyers standing there behind them. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion towards the killer's family himself. As they went out the afternoon of the shooting itself, one of the Amish grandfathers, with one of the girls who was killed there, he expressed in words and, and said in words to the family, forgiveness towards the killer, Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish families began visiting the Roberts family home to comfort them in their sorrow and in their family. Later that week, the Roberts family was invited to the funeral of one of the Amish girls who had been killed. 
their Amish mourners at the Roberts funeral outnumbered the non-Amish mourners for Charles Roberts' funeral. It's known now that the killer himself had been tormented for nine years, that his own daughter had died a premature death, and apparently he had never forgiven God for that. Yet after he cold-bloodedly shot ten schoolgirls in a one-school classroom, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed him compassion toward his family. And in a world that just cannot seem to put these pieces together, all we do is, is blame and point fingers and blame others. This reaction and this type of reaction is absolutely unheard of. How could they forgive such a terrible heinous, unprovoked act of violence against innocent lives. You see, the path to radical forgiveness rejects common sense. As we look at this passage further, we have to remember the context of what we've been reading, the process that we've been walking through in Matthew chapter 18. What else have we been learning as we've been working our way through this chapter? Followers of Jesus Christ are to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven like little children. Verse 3 told us, except that you become converted as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then we are to be protected like we would protect little children. Verse 6 tells us, whoever shall offend with these little children and believe in me, it would be better for him that a millstone would be hung around his neck and he would be thrown into the depths of the sea. So we are to enter the kingdom of heaven like children. We're going to be protected, God says, that God is going to protect his little children. We are to be cared for like little children. And after this next section of verses in the significant chapter, we also be disciplined like children. When one of us sins, verse 15 tells us that we're going to be disciplined. And when one of us sins, he or she is to be approached by others for correction, for restoration, as you would a little child. As we come to verse 21, we will note that we are to be forgiven like little children. John MacArthur writes this. We are to be forgiven like children. There's a great sense of tolerance with children because we understand that they have weaknesses. We understand that they have ignorance. We understand their inabilities. Being childlike is indicating that we are going to fail. There are going to be times when we do the wrong things. We're still in the process of maturing, of growing up, of ordering our behavior. But when we do sin, and after discipline has been enacted, we are also to be forgiven just as children are to be forgiven. People can rather easily hold grudges against other adults, other peers, but it's somehow abnormal, wouldn't you, grudge against a child. To hold a grudge against a child, we actually tend to forgive children rather easily. Adults have difficulty in thinking through and the different things that we need or we want from someone else. But when, when this teaching of this passage comes before us, that, we are, that believers are to be treated like little children, for a spiritual sense, we need to know and understand that same type of graciousness that we have when we forgive a child and we don't hold something against that child. The forgiveness that we have for that child or even the forgiveness that a child would show towards you or towards me. When Peter proposed forgiving someone seven times, it actually makes pretty good sense. But the path to radical forgiveness rejects common sense. 
In the Old Testament, the first book of the Bible, where all things begin, Genesis, we, we read about Cain and about Abel. I'll read it for you. Genesis 4, 8 through 16. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You'll be a fugitive. You'll be a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil. I will be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive. I'll be a wanderer on the earth. And anyone who meets me may, may try to kill me. Check out what the Lord says to him. Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. The Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Fast forward a few more verses. The next chapter over, the next few lines of Scripture, five generations later, we see laid out Cain's uh, generations after him. Another rough character arrives on the scene, and his name is Lamech. This tough guy decides he's going to double down on God's promise. His great-great-great-grandfather Cain had this promise. So Lamech decides that he is going to avenge any acts against him or his family 77-fold. Chapter 4, verse 23, Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech will be avenged seventy-sevenfold. Those numbers seem to be important, don't they? So in case you missed it, Jesus is talking to Peter, and he is reversing what he had come to expect, what, what Cain and Lamech's promises, Jesus prescribes, promises reality of what is going to change. There's going to be an unlimited amount of forgiveness, reversing this curse on Cain, nullifying the bloodthirsty, revengeous heart of Lamech. Peter hoped to sound extremely loving in what he was suggesting by taking this and forgiving a repentant brother up to seven times. His answer, his suggestion, makes a lot of sense. But the path to radical forgiveness rejects common sense. Jesus throws away all limits and calculations. His expectations for a follower of Jesus Christ is to give and to give and to give and to give again. To take up your cross, Jesus says. They are to give their all. And some of you are listening to the words that I'm sharing, and you've been through some situations, you've been through some things, and your answer in your own mind is that, yes, but when is all not enough? I've given my all, as I understand. I've given everything, and it's not enough. Well, continue reading. Therefore, verse 23 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children, all that he had been sold, uh, all that he had, be sold to repay the debt. As the servant fell on his knees before him, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 
The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Radical forgiveness requires tremendous cost. I heard a sermon in the early 2000s, 2005, something like that. And the thrust of the sermon, the push of the sermon was to say, is there someone that you need to ask for forgiveness? Is there someone who holds something against you that you need to correct their wrongs? And instantly something flashed into my mind, and I may have shared this here before, but it came to my mind, I've not seen something so clearly ever before, uh, being convicted of something. My younger sister was two years younger than me, we were both in the high school band together, and I was a terrible older brother. In the band room one day after our lunch period, I was, as we were running to class and being late for class, I took my sister and I shoved her into a band locker and closed the door behind her. As I did so, there was an audible pop, snapping sound. When I opened the door back up, I realized when I looked in there that there was this wall locker, was a standing, was a bassoon there in the locker. And I'd shoved her into that locker and snapped the bassoon in half. Now those of you who are musicians know that that is no small thing. And I looked her straight in the eye and I said, you will never tell anyone. Or you will live in this band locker. And she didn't. She didn't tell anyone. And it wasn't until eight maybe 10 years later that that sermon happened, I realized, oh no. So I called up my sister, apologized to her, and she said, okay. I realized I had to go back and make contact. So I went back and made contact with my high school band director, someone who was intensely and immensely proud of me, if I'm honest. She was a saxophone teacher on top of being the band instructor. So as I had played saxophones, I've shared with you, and I went into the Marine Band playing saxophone. I'd even been able to bring the Marine Band back to our hometown, even bring it into our very same band room. And the the Marine Band played in that same band room. I was able to bring these things to our little town. She was so proud of me until I made that phone call. And I told her what had happened. Asked for her forgiveness. And she said, thank you. And then a few weeks later, I got a bill (laughs) for $2,000, which I paid, sent the money back to her. I didn't have a lot of money, and it cost me a lot to get that right. And that relationship has not been the same since. The damage had been done. I could have paid for six bassoons. Maybe I could. I don't know if I could. But that wasn't really what it was about. And so sometimes you feel like you have paid everything. You've put it all on the table. You've asked and done everything that you possibly could in, in looking for and asking for forgiveness. And she's a lovely woman and it's not her fault, but she's just not there yet. When we look at this passage, we need to be reminded that radical forgiveness requires tremendous cost. The king here is trying to settle his accounts with his servants. In this parable, the king, he comes, he expects his servants to be faithful and honorable with the things that have been given. 
expects them to live their lives in a certain way, expects them to be honorable with what they've been given. And so he examines their work. He sees what they've been up to. And he comes across this servant who now owes him 10,000 talents or bags of gold. Commentators list this modern value of 10,000 ta- talents somewhere between 12 million and 1 billion dollars. The figure clearly represents an unpayable debt. The master commands that everything that he had be he was not going to be able to pay the debt. It wasn't going to be enough. And the master commands to sell the debtor himself and his family. And culturally, this does happen in the first century. That he was going to be sold into slavery. His family, all that he had, everything was going to be sold. And it would still not satisfy the debt. Slaves at their top price during that time period were sold at one talent each. And usually sold for much less if they were damaged goods. As in someone who could not be trusted. Yet it would bring some form or some measure of justice to the situation. And the audacity of this servant to say, Master, just have patience with me and I will repay the debt. Promise makes no sense at all. He spoke as if all he needed was patience. If he were enough time that he would actually be able to pay off this massive debt. As the disciples are hearing this story, they would be audibly laughing to the absurdity of such a thing. It would take him hundreds of years to pay this off. Charles Spurgeon says, many a poor sinner rich in their resolutions. The servant debtor thought he only needed patience, but indeed what he needed was forgiveness. The master of the servant was moved with compassion. We don't know why. But in this parable, the the master releases him and forgave him the debt. Do you think that the debt just dissipated into the sky? A billion dollars of debt. Someone has to pay for that. Someone has to cover that debt. The master shows tremendous compassion. He forgives the debt. A debt that could never, ever be repaid. Despite whatever promises that this servant would made. Radical forgiveness requires tremendous cost. But when the servant went out, verse 28, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him. He began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me. I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown the prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant back in, he said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. You see, radical forgiveness remembers or doesn't forget God's grace. God's grace. This debt was real. The wrong had been committed. It wasn't fabricated. Fabricated. The other servant owed him money. A hundred denarii was roughly equal to a hundred days' wages. This was a big deal. This was not an insignificant amount. There was almost nothing 
compared to the debt forgiven by his master. When the commentators put it at a one over $600,000 difference of the debt owed by the master to the first servant. And we see here when he couldn't pay, the servant takes him by the throat and chokes him, throttles him, says, you have to pay. The man who owed the smaller debt used the same plea, the exact same plea and the promise that brought mercy to the man of even the greater debt. The exact same words. He says, have mercy with me. Uh, Be patient with me. I will pay it back. But it gained nothing. And the servant who had been forgiven so much went ahead and put the other one into debtor's prison. Unreal. Have you forgotten? Radical forgiveness remembers grace. And then his fellow servants, when they see what has been done, there's no mention at all in this parable. When you read through it, it's shockingly obvious to all of us as readers, as we are, as we are pouring across this, as the listeners are listening, there, there's no mention whatsoever that the first servant had conscious what he was doing or what was wrong. It didn't bother him. His conduct didn't seem to bother him at all. It was his fellow servants. They recognized the problem. They recognized what was wrong, the wrong that had been done. And they did what? They took it to the master. When he heard of this, he was understandably angry. It was just wrong. It was just wrong for a man who had been forgiven so much to then be so unforgiving. He then gave to the first servant exactly what he deserved. Justice instead of mercy. The unforgiving servant who was grabbing the other servant by the throat and shaking him and demanding what? Justice must be paid. Got exactly what he asked for. Verse 35 says this, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Let's recap. Radical forgiveness rejects common sense. Radical forgiveness requires great sacrifice. Tremendous sacrifice. Radical forgiveness remembers God's grace. And for what purpose? Here's the last point. Radical forgiveness reveals God's glory. Reveals God's glory. The first century listeners, the disciples that are standing there around, the readers that are reading the works of Matthew. Matthew does so much work in his gospel to connect things back to the Old Testament to make sure that the Jews who are listening, that things are, their synapses are, 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 are snapping because they're paying attention to what he is saying. The biblical context in which they're listening, understanding when they talk about forgiveness and slavery, they're going to immediately, their mind is going to go to Joseph. The man who had been made a slave by his brothers. If you want to read this story, you can read it. Genesis chapters 37 all the way through 50, but I'll, I'll, I'll cover it quickly here. 
Joseph, as a young man, seemed to brag a lot about the dreams that God had given him. It was obvious uh, to Joseph's father, Jacob, that there was something special about him. But Jacob made him his favorite. And he did something damaging in that to the older brothers. And the older brothers, they did not like his bragging. They did not like his favoritism. And they became bitter. And hatred started to burn in their hearts. And so what do they do? They sell their younger brother into slavery. And they go back and tell their father, Jacob, that his son, the color dream coat, his son had been eaten by a wild animal. And Joseph spends the next 10 to 15 years as a slave and then in prison. Then Pharaoh, the, the, the king of Egypt, he has this dream that suddenly no one in all of, of the area is able to do anything about it except for Joseph, this man who is in prison. He's able to interpret it. Pharaoh is pleased with Joseph. He makes him second in charge over all of Egypt. That dream that he interpreted said there's going to be a famine for seven years. And then the present seven years there would be abundance so they could prepare themselves for the famine. So Joseph sends everyone in Egypt uh, to be able to get through the famine. He, he, he brings all the supplies in and he puts them all in order so there would be so much food that people would be able to travel from all around the region, from all different places, all coming to Egypt to get the food that they needed to survive the next seven years. And of course, Joseph's brothers were some of the people who needed food. And so when they come to Egypt to get food, Joseph recognizes his abusers. Instead of killing them or making slaves out of them, his brothers, he does what? He forgives them. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 is a very powerful verse. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Look around. He said, look at all these people who have survived because of the evil that you committed against me. God used it for. Joseph chose to choose forgiveness even before he saw his brothers coming through the door. He knew that God had forgiven them for the things that they had done. He knew that God was guiding his path the entire time. He had literally been sold by his brothers into slavery, yet when given the power, given the authority, and given the opportunity to enslave each and every one of them, should he choose to do so, he instead did what? He chose to forgive. And even more so, he chose to, to look at his own, not power, but frailty before a holy God. After their father passes away, the brothers come again to Joseph, begging for mercy. And he responds to his brother's request for forgiveness in Genesis 50 by saying, Who am I? Who am I as I stand before God? Who am I? Why would a perfect, righteous God want me? Why would a perfect and righteous God want you? Other people who aren't that smart reject you. <laughs> other people uh, reject other people because they're not bright or they're not righteous. Why would God, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, so He knows all of our blemishes, all of our weaknesses, all of our faults, all of our sin, and deep down we all know there's something deep down wrong inside of us, and yet He forgives us. 
There's nothing lovely about us. And yet Jesus, the Father as well, chooses to forgive us. We can take great confidence in this. God loves us and He brings us into a reconciled relationship with Him because those who realize that they've been forgiven much, those who realize that they are just as filthy as the rest of the world, if it not were for a holy God and for the grace and the radical forgiveness that's been shown to them, honoring Him and glorifying Him and forgiving others in the same way is what drives them. This is what Jesus requires us to do. We are servant number one in this parable. We've been forgiven of an amount that is absolutely and entirely unpayable. We've been forgiven for everything we have ever done. So Jesus requires that we are to forgive others for the large things and the small things that they do to us. Forgiveness is hard work. Radical forgiveness is reveals God's glory. And so because we've been forgiven for so much, we should forgive others as well. So here's the implications of the gospel if we look at this. You see, on the cross, that's the name of this series, we got to get to the cross. If we come to the cross, what do we find? That Jesus has paid a debt that we cannot pay. The author of Romans tells us, for all have sinned and come what? Come short of the glory of God. Radical forgiveness reveals God's glory. On the cross, Jesus paid a a debt that we cannot pay, and he paid it in full. On the cross, Jesus fulfills a promise that we cannot make. This servant tried to tell him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. And he would never be able to do that. No amount of patience would ever allow for him to to pay back what he would never be able to pay. He was unable to do so, even if he had been willing to do so. On the cross, Jesus prays a prayer. Jesus prays a prayer that we cannot pray. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They know not what they do. They don't know why, they don't know how, they are unable to even fathom what is happening right now. Father, forgive them anyway. You see, at the foot of the cross, radically forgiven people must be in the business of radically forgiving people. At the foot of the cross, radically forgiven people must be in the business of radically forgiving people. As the band comes forward this morning, every head bowed, every eye closed, as we pray over this text, as we look for what God has to say to us. If you're here this morning, you're seeing these words, these harsh words of Christ. Are you still, are you still trying to do what the servant was trying to do here. Just give me a little bit more time. Be patient with me. I'll make sure that in my life the good things outweigh this. I'll make sure that I get my life in order and then then maybe I'll come into the holy place. Maybe then I will come into the church. Maybe then I will consider 
the ways of Jesus, maybe then I will ask the Heavenly Father to come into my life. If you already know Christ, are you still forgetting to live in the awe of the freedom that you have in Christ through His forgiveness for your sins? So Lord, for anyone We pray for anyone who might be far from you. We pray, Lord, as we've looked at this text, Lord, as we've we've done our very best to open it up and shine light as you would shine light to light our path. Lord, we don't understand exactly the difficult way. This path to radical forgiveness. Lord, if there's someone here that says, I don't even know this Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would stop chasing that empty hole inside of them and trying to fill it up with all the things of this world when really there's only one thing. Asking for radical forgiveness. Lord, would you please forgive me for my sins? I can never do it on my own. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Lord, will you forgive me for attempting to do anything to appease a holy God? And then, Lord, those who are here that just need to live their lives in radical, forgiving ways. Lord, I pray that this morning, that your text, that your word, Lord, as we've all come to it this morning, Lord, as it is shining its light into my heart, into the dark places of my heart as well, Lord, where would there be things that need to be trimmed away, be cut away, where forgiveness needs to be given? because of the forgiveness that you have given us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.